Okay. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Canaanite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word against, I brought him word against as it was in my heart. But my brothers, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God, and Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these forty-five years since the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, now, behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Thank you, guys. You be seated. Let's pray. We well, yeah. children, you are dismissed uh, five and under. Darius, it's your turn. <laughs> He's excited just to sit there and listen more about Joshua, right? Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning with hearts that want to hear from you. Hearts that are weak and timid. Um, I'm sure there's some of us, maybe among us here today, that have hearts like this guy, Caleb. But I know most of us don't have that kind of bold faith. And God, I, I know I don't. And so I ask, even this morning, as I preach, that you would give me that, that boldness and that courage. And for those that are hearing, that you would help them to hear from you, from your word, that your spirit would open our ears to hear. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Start the recording here, my backup recording I always do. We are in the book of Joshua again. And we're reading, last time we went through uh, Joshua, we were looking at a whole, like six or seven chapters. Remember all the allotment of the land? There was a couple of sections in those chapters that I skipped over intentionally because they need some time just for themselves. And this is one of those this morning. And I just want to remind you, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says that these things that happen, he's talking in that chapter about a story from the Old Testament about the people of Israel rebelling. But Paul says to us that these things happen to them, those people in the, old is, in the Old Testament, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction 
us on whom the end of the ages has come. These stories from the Old Testament are written to us for our example. They're written to us for our instruction. They are real. They are real history. And they're written for us so that we can learn from them both how to live and also how to see Jesus. And we're going to look at that today. I hope you heard in the, in the, mess, in the uh, scriptures as John read that Caleb is one of those lives that we need to look at. Uh, he is one of those lives that have an example for us to follow. He had a heart of faith. I don't know if you caught that, but we'll catch it as we go through this, that he had a heart that wholly followed the Lord. In fact, he even said it as boldly as that. He said, I wholly followed the Lord. I don't know that I can say that, <laughs> but he says that. He says it twice, we'll see. He says, I wholly followed the Lord. And the simplest way, shoot, do you have a, a buck on you? I knew I was going to miss this. Like, I can't, well, you, you don't want to do that. <laughs> the simplest way, if I was going to summarize this passage really fast, Caleb. Which one's Caleb? I always mix him up. <laughs> Caleb, I will give this to you. I just said I will give this to you. How would you show faith in my word that I said I will give it to you? How would you demonstrate faith that I will give this to you? You would? Hmm. Stephen, I will give this to you. How would you demonstrate? How would you demonstrate that I, faith, that I will keep my word? You would take it, huh? Okay. Thane, I will give this to you. How can you demonstrate faith? In my word that I said, I will give this to you. He's not sure. Maybe JJ will figure this out. JJ, I will give you this dollar bill. How can you show me that you believe that I will? Just grab it? Just grab it? Yeah, you could. Oh, boy. I got, I got some adults waving their hands at Bob. <laughs> All right. Wesley, that would be in the family. That's like, <laughs> oh, we got Ophelia. Ophelia, I will give you this $1 bill. How, how can you show me that you trust, that you believe what I said? <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. I forget your first name. Olivia. I will give this to you. Do you believe that I will give this to you? How can you show me? Just ask him. You don't even have to ask. I'll just give it to you. How can you how can you believe that? How can you show us that you believe I'll give it to you? Ask God. You don't have to ask God. All right, guys. What do they have to do? They got to reach out and grab this. <laughs> Bob, I will give this to you. That's faith. 
right? <laughs> Folks, that is what faith looks like. Now I feel like I owe like a dollar to every single one of these kids. So hit me up later, kids. <laughs> That's faith. He just grabbed it and said, I will believe you. I believe you'll take it. You'll give it to me. That's what Caleb did. All right, that'd be the end of the sermon. Honestly, that's the point. But let's dig in and see what does it look like to demonstrate faith, the heart of faith. And this is, if I can kind of summarize what the Bible says in this chapter about faith. It says, Caleb, I say that Caleb demonstrated faith by believing what God told him, responding in wholehearted obedience and then pleaded for the blessing and reward, he took it, believing what God said. That is what chapter 14 really is about. But let's take a step back, because some of you may not be familiar with Caleb. I hope, Caleb, you're familiar with who Caleb is, your namesake, right? Caleb, what was his story? Where did he come from? We're in the book of Joshua, but if you have your Bibles, you can go backwards to, chap- to Numbers. I'll have it up here on the, on the overhead. Numbers chapter 13 and 14 is an interesting story. God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. He had brought them out saying, I'm going to deliver you from slavery, and I'm going to bring you into this land I've been promising for 400 years. He said, I would give it to Abraham. I told Isaac. I told Jacob. I'm going to do this. And he showed them with a mighty hand by bringing them out of Egypt. He demonstrated all kinds of miracles. Water from the rock, the Red Sea parting, manna, quail, all these things. And they get so close to the promised land. And the Lord tells Moses here, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. He's giving it to them. He says, I'm going to give this to you. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. And so they send him out. They send him out on a reconnaissance mission for uh, 12 men. And it says that later then, at the end of 40 days, they return from spying out the land. So they get back from that spy mission, and they told him, We came to the land which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And they were showing these huge clusters of grapes that two men had to carry on a pole. It was mind-blowing. It was evidence that this is as good as God has been promising all along. That's what they said, and then they said this. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. (laughs) So 10 of these guys are saying this. Yeah, it's amazing, but oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe these people, these, these, these beings. But Caleb speaks up. He says, it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once. And occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Oh my goodness, guys. <laughs> and they, this is what it says So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report. 
of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, remember going into seventh grade. And you saw those freshmen. Or maybe you remember going into freshmen and you felt like you're about as high as little Stephen over there. And these guys are scary. That's what they're saying. These are also the same people who saw God part the Red Sea, send the ten plagues, and they said this. God says this. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? It's it's flabbergasting, isn't it? Then he says, Moses prays. It goes on several verses and then Moses prays, praying to God, come please, I know they're idiots, I know they're idiots, but please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. There's a big but that follows. He says, but truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. He's basically saying that anybody who's 20 years old and up in that generation would not get to go into the promised land. They would die in the wilderness. But then he says this, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, is speaking through Moses to Joshua, or to Caleb, and says, your descendants shall possess it. He's making a promise, personal promise, right there to Caleb. And then he says, now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. That's the background before we even get to Joshua 14. That's why the children of Israel wandered for 40 years, because they despised the Lord. And God made a promise to Joshua and Caleb that their families would live, but everybody else was going to die except for the children. The children grow up and they go in. And as we've seen through the book of Joshua, they go into the land and it's amazing, right? The walls of Jericho falling down, the sun standing still. This conquest has been amazing. And now we get to chapter 14 that John read. Let's look at it again. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea. That's the place where all that happened that we just read about. 
concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord. I want to just point out two things in this section here. First of all, notice it calls him a Kenizzite. If you were reading through Numbers, you might not have caught this, but it doesn't describe him as a Kenizzite there. It just describes him as the son of Jephunneh. Well, if you look up Jephunneh, you would find out that he is related to a guy named Kenaz, which is why Joshua calls him here a Kenizzite. Kenaz was, a, uh, was related to Esau, not to Jacob. Israel, Judah, the 12 tribes all come from Jacob. This guy, Caleb, isn't even fully Jewish. He is an outsider. He's a cousin, but he's not part of the people of Israel. He has been brought in through marriage, and God has made this kind of promise to this man who showed faith. Outsiders brought into the people of God. I don't know if any of you are like Jewish, but most of us here probably are not. And if you've trusted in Christ, this already pictures just through that one little word you probably didn't even recognize that through Christ, You've been brought in as well. Second, notice this, made the heart of the people melt. When Caleb's talking about what happened back in Kadesh Barnea, he said those 10 people's, 10 spies report, they made the heart of the people melt. That phrase has already been used um, five times in the book of Joshua. The first four times, it was used to talk about their enemies' hearts melting when they saw what Yahweh had done. The fifth time is when the people of Israel's heart melted because uh, Achan disobeyed and they lost. And now again, it's talking about the people of Israel, their heart melting. What Caleb's doing here is contrasting that first generation's weak, faithless response. They're despising God with his bold faith that says, this God promises and I believe him and I'm going to follow him. That's what he's saying there. He's doing that to show this contrast between the faithless generation and himself. Okay, let's keep moving. Joshua 14, 9 through 10. Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. Because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke his word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. Caleb's telling Joshua, he's saying, you know. In fact, right there where it says, you know, the ESV actually is leaving out a word because it seemed a little odd in the English but it literally says you, comma, and there's no commas in the Hebrew, but essentially you, you know. Caleb's basically saying to Joshua, you, you know. You know what God said to me. And that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying it's been 45 years, and I'm still hanging on. I'm still believing what God said. Then we get to verse 11, and it says, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. That phrase for going and coming is like, 
for doing life, right? Just doing everything. I've got the same strength. And it's really interesting because God has provided in that 45 years for Caleb in an unusual way. How many of you know 85-year-olds that feel as strong and uh, full of energy as they were when they were 40? I know, Norma, you do. But... (laughs) Um, that's probably about it. I mean, that is unusual. God gave him supernatural strength to endure, and he felt as young and as strong as when he was 40 years old. And I think that Caleb has more than war on his mind right here. But I think that he does have that on his mind because he knows, as we'll see here. So look at verse 12, and I'm just flying through this, and then we're going to learn what it looks like in the life, what the life of faith looks like. Verse 12, so now give me this hill country. I don't know if you grew up on the King James. How many grew up in King James? Right, what did it say there? Give me this mountain, <laughs> right? That phrase, give me this mountain. He says, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, not Anakin, Star Wars fans, uh, were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. First of all, we need to see that Caleb is demanding in faith of Joshua, give me this place. That's faith. Just demonstrate right there. Just like Bob showed, he's like, give it to me. (laughs) And then how does that faith work out? He bases it on that what I've highlighted there, that the Lord spoke. It's not that Caleb says to Joshua, hey, you know what a dude I am. I deserve this land. That's not what he's saying. Even though he said, I wholly follow the Lord, that's not, he's not basing it on his, like his worthiness. He's basing it on what the word of God said, that God spoke to him directly. You know, God said this to me. Now, the next question we need to ask is, who are these Anakim? The Anakim. And Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua are the only books that actually use that exact name, the Anakim. And both instances, Deuteronomy and Joshua, are referring to the giants that the spies saw 45 years ago. The giants. Now, we know that the Anakim actually is referring to the sons of Anak, Because if you'll notice at the end of the chapter, and we'll get to that later, it actually refers to them as Anak. So Anakim are sons of Anak. But we need to ask, okay, well, who is Anak? In Numbers 13, back when we were reading that story, the spies came back and they give them a specific name. Did I put it here? No, I didn't. If you're looking at your text... In, November, in, in, in Numbers 13, they're called the Nephilim. Did you catch that? Like, what, the, what, what is that? Nephilim. Well, who are those? Because <laughs> it doesn't define them in Numbers 13. You have to go back to Genesis 6. And Genesis 6 is where we're introduced to them. And that's the only other time in the Bible we're introduced to them. In Genesis 6-4, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, 
when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And you're probably like, what the heck is that? (laughs) That is weird, isn't it? Um, In fact, if you've ever been ordained or sat in on a council where they ask a guy who's going to be ordained all kinds of hard theological questions, for some reason they always want to ask, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? The Nephilim, what are they? Well, let me just tell you, there's, there's three views here on who these Anakim are, the Nephilim. Okay, the text in Genesis 6 says the sons of God intermarried with women. And they had children, and that's what they say they are. Well, one view is that those are the sons of Seth. Seth was one of Adam's sons, right? His third, and that they married the daughters of Cain. That's one view. Second view is that um, these are just powerful human rulers. Could be, could be. But as far back as the second century, so... People like Justin Martyr um, have, a, have believed that these are actually fallen angels that intermarried with, with people. It's very, um, very odd, very odd thing. We can't build a lot on it, but I think it's super important that we think this through a little bit because it matters for our text here. Um, I also think it's very likely that Goliath, the, di- the giant that David slain, was also one of these, Anakim. And he had a brother that's referenced as well, who was also killed. Um, yeah, the guy that had six fingers, but not from the prince's bride. Um, the point is, why does this all matter? If you're just, we don't fully understand what the sons of God is and the Nephilim, because the Bible doesn't like just lay it out. But what we do know is they are scary as scary can be. They are giants. Goliath was, what, nine feet tall? And very strong. I mean, the tallest man in the world, in the book of Guinness Records, I remember as a kid looking at that page and reading about him a lot. He was really tall. He was like nine-something. But he was frail and very thin and died young because his heart couldn't handle, handle it. This is not how Goliath was described, was it? Goliath was described as a giant with muscles and could destroy. And the people of Israel, when the spies were sent in, that's the kind of people they saw. That is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. In fact, it says it's so terrifying, it makes the people's hearts melt. Uh, You have to to enter into that in order to see that these beings were so scary that the people of Israel were willing to rebel against God. The people of Israel were willing to say, uh, I don't know if God could handle this one because these are that bad. I mean, we quickly think that they just forgot everything. I don't think they just forgot the Red Sea party. I don't think they just forgot all those miracles. They can't have just forgotten them. They, though, are comparing those miracles with what they're seeing in these giants, and they're not sure. That's how scary these guys are. Now, why does that matter? Because when it's talking about the Anakim, again, it's comparing the faithlessness, the weak faith of the children of Israel and Caleb's kind of faith. Because 
Caleb says this, verse 13. Then, well, no, he says this right there. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Now, when he says it may be, Caleb is not doubting that God will give him that land. He is fully believing God will give him that land. Caleb believes that God will do that. But what Caleb's doing here when he says it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, Caleb is demonstrating humility. He's believing that God's sovereign and he can't command God to do this. He can't command how God's going to give him the land. But he's recognizing that the way that he might inherit the land is that God may let him be the one to go into battle against those giants. He's got this mindset that this could be awesome. <laughs> like, the rest of the people are like, that's not awesome. <laughs> that's freaky. And he's like, let's get him. And God may let me be part of that. That's why he says it may be. Caleb's faith is so bold that he wants to go in and fight these giants, believing that God will likely use him to do that. He might even use me, he's saying. All right, so verse 13, then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. And we looked all, the last time I went to Joshua, about inheritance and why that's such an important word as we think forward to Christ giving us the inheritance. But here we see that Caleb received the fruit of his faith. He believed God would give him what was promised, and it happened. Joshua gave him, not just gave it to him, but he blessed him and gave him the inheritance. That's very important. Let's look at verses 14 through 15. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because... He wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron, formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from the war. And those two verses wrap up the chapter, and it'd probably be really easy to read them really fast in your reading and think, okay, let's go on to the next chapter. There's some geography stuff and history stuff in there. But these are important, again. They're important because they stress why Caleb received the inheritance. Why? Because, because, that word because is so important. He received it because he fully, wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. It also tells us the name change from a Canaanite name, because it was Kiriath Arba, and it's now named Hebron. That's very important because the land, the city, the area where Hebron is used to be called Mamre. Does anybody remember what Mamre is? Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, hanging out there, living there. God comes and visits him. Those two angels, the three angels, and we didn't know who they were, and you get the phrase, uh, uh, attending angels unaware. That's that story. And that happened here at Hebron. It's also the same area where uh, the cave of Machpelah is, which is where Abraham, what Abraham bought 
to bury his family in. You're like, okay, he buried it. That's super important because Christian burial is a hope of the resurrection. It's, it's, it's saying, this is where God gave me this land, and I believe he's going to raise me again from the dead. So Caleb, getting the area of Mamre, Hebron, is a quite a special blessing because it connects him to Abraham, who once is his great-great-grandfather in some on down the line, right? But it really ties him into the people of God. Okay, so we just went through the passage, and I wanted to just kind of explain what's going on there. But there's so much more for us to glean from this personally. We're not the first generation to read this passage. The book of Joshua was put there, and the first generation to read it was Israelites. More than likely, Israelites late in the time before exile, or possibly even after exile, right around the time at that time, that generation struggled to not compromise. That generation saw all this idolatry around them, and they often compromised and did what's called syncretism. They would worship God at the temple, but then they would go up to the high places and also worship idols. That same generation gets to read this story and say, I need this kind of faith because I need to be able to stand up even when the rest of my neighbors are not worshiping God as we ought. It encouraged that generation. This passage would have strengthened their faith. It would have strengthened their faith. Why? Because it demonstrates to them what faith actually looks like fleshed out. And it looks for us, shows us what faith looks like fleshed out. So that's what I want us to do is just think through how does this, how do these nine verses show us what the life of faith looks like? And this is going to hit home, I hope. I've been praying that it will because it's hit home with me this week. First of all, let's ask ourselves what faith is. I keep saying it's a life of faith, but remind us, what is faith? Hebrews 11 tells us. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, people of old, like Caleb and Abraham, right, and Noah, received their commendation. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith, my friends, is not what the world says it is today. Faith is not faith in faith. You know what I mean by that? You ever hear people like, you just got to have enough faith, right? And if we have enough faith, it, it's, like, it's like almost if I hope hard enough, I'll be stronger. Faith in faith is silliness <laughs> because it's just like basically pulling up my bootstraps and saying, I can do this. I can, if I just suck it up, I can do it. That's not faith. Faith has an anchor. Faith is directed towards something. What do you have faith in? Not faith in itself, because then it'd be faith in yourself, and I'm not so great. Faith is putting your hope in a God who is. That's what he's saying. It's believing that what he is, what he says he is, is what he is. And what he says will come true. That's what faith is. 
And it's not about how great your faith is. Caleb had great faith. But really, it comes down to us. It's about whether we have faith or not. Leon Morris put it this way. He says, it's not so much great faith in God that is required as faith in a great God. Right? So faith has to be anchored in a great God. So what can we learn about Caleb's life of faith? First of all, let's look at what faith looks like. Faith, first of all, is lonely. The life of faith can be a lonely life. Sometimes it's a life that stands all by itself when everybody else is going a different direction. And that's what Caleb did, right? Caleb and Joshua, pretty lonely because the rest of their generation for 40 years were against them. The entire generation. Just imagine that. All those people said they follow the Lord. Imagine yourself. Imagine, and don't do this normally, but imagine everybody else in this room is not really a good follower of God and doesn't believe in him. Imagine that, and you're the only one. That'd be pretty lonely. And that's sometimes what the life of faith is. It's a just facing the tide of resistance. Now, Caleb's faith sounds courageous. It is, but you can't lose sight that that is a lonely, lonely battle. It is a lonely battle. And as soon as you begin to realize this, you begin to know that the road most taken is not the road of faith. Secondly, the, faith look, the, the, the life of faith is scary. You and I are called to face scary things. Caleb knew that. That's why I stress so much the Anakim to help you see that this life of faith is not a cakewalk. It is hard and it is scary at times. You're called to go in and to the darkness. You're called to walk in the darkness. You know what that's like. Like getting up in the middle of the night and trying to find the bathroom. <laughs> it can be scary. I mean, have you ever been to like to this building or a big church building in the middle of the night and there's no lights on? That's creepy, isn't it? Like you hear these noises, it's scary. We are called, the life of faith is one of walking in the darkness, bringing the light with you, but it is scary. It can be scary. In addition, what do we see from the life of faith in Caleb is it's long. It's long. 45 years long in this case. But it may be even longer. The life of faith is not about instant gratification. I think there are churches that teach that, that you believe hard enough, you're going to get what you want right now. That is not the model of faith we see in the life of Caleb or pretty much anybody in the Bible. The life of faith is a long, hard obedience in the same direction. That long obedience in the same direction is how one man describes perseverance. It's a long one, and you don't know when you're going to receive the promises. It's willing to take the next step or to sit patiently knowing I'm not going to be rewarded instantly. Think about that. Caleb waited 45 years. 45 years. But the life of faith is also like the same song played over and over. And that can be really annoying if you turn on D102. 
right? (laughs) The life of faith learns that believing in God does not mean our circumstances will change. Caleb, 45 years before this chapter we're in, faced giants of unnatural strength and size. 45 years later, they're still there. In fact, there's more of them at this point. In fact, if you look at chapter 15, verse 14, it tells you that there's more. Three more clans. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Ahiman, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak. The trial only got bigger. It's the same thing. Can you imagine for 45 years, he's probably thinking about, okay, how are we going to do this? I'm sure that there were doubts that would come into his mind, but he'd always have to do go back to what God said, right? Your temptations and trials you face are not guaranteed to disappear like the mist. The life of faith, as we see in this passage, means that your trials are not going to just disappear. Dodson says it this way, faith does not dissipate our trials. Rather, faith connects us to the power and help of God in the face of seeming impossibilities. The life of faith is not going in to say, well, if I believe God, he's going to remove this trial from me. The life of faith says no matter what this trial brings, no matter if he never takes away this temptation from me, he has the power and the ability to help me all the way to the end. That's what the life of faith looks like. The life of faith, though, is also partially uncertain. And I say partially because there is a certainty that we will talk about in a second. Caleb said, perhaps. He said, it may be. Perhaps God would give him the inheritance through victory over the giants, but Caleb didn't know for sure, did he? Caleb did know that he would get that land inheritance because God said he would. But what he didn't know is how that would look. In fact, for all he knew, he might go into battle and die, even though his army may win and his family get the land. And in that sense, he still would actually be receiving the promise, but he didn't even know that for sure. Abraham, when God told him to go sacrifice his son, God had promised Abraham as many generations and children that would number the sand of the shore. And Abraham only had one son through his wife, And God tells him to go kill it. Abraham believed, it says later in the New Testament, that Abraham believed that even if Isaac has to die, God will raise him from the dead. That's the kind of faith that you don't even know. But you know what's true because God says this. What you don't know is how God's going to work it out. And so many times in our life, our trials that we have, I don't know how he's going to work it out. And sometimes I go through it, and it's so different than I even imagined. That's what I mean, that faith, this life of faith is partially uncertain because I know what he said, but how it's going to work out is going to be really interesting to see how it goes. But here's what you need to see. The life of faith also holds God to his word. And I did write that that way on purpose. It holds God to his word. Five times in our passage, 
And in one sense, you could even count it as six. Five times in those nine verses, Caleb says, God said. And he's almost like talking to God and said, you said. And if you are one who's never going to break your word, then you better keep your word, God. This is not about simply buckling down, grinning, and burying it. You're going to run out of that fuel real soon. Trust me. I think we all in this room know what life is like when I try to do it in my own strength. The only way Caleb made it to this point is by clinging to the promises that God gave him. That's the key, my friends. That's the key to why he can say, I wholly follow the Lord, why God sustained me, and why I know is because of his promises. Where do you find his promises? Here. This has got to be in us. That's the promises that will get you through to the end. Romans 4, 20 and 21, talking about Abraham, Paul says this, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Now, maybe you hear me talking about this and you're like, I don't feel worthy to talk to God and claim these promises. Maybe shame and guilt kind of overwhelm you. Maybe what you've done in your past makes you think your unworthiness will prevent you from receiving those promises. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to think, and he's wrong. The unworthy ones are the one who Christ came for. The unworthy ones are the one Christ made the promises for. Read this from Joel Beakey. No unworthiness, therefore, should hinder us from believing or receiving the promises of God since they are freely given to those who do not deserve them. And we have the promise of John 6.37 that the Lord will receive us as we are, base, sinful, poor, and of no account, and he will not cast us away. Our unworthiness then rather than disqualifying us, actually qualifies us for God has made his promises not to those who deserve grace, but to those who need it. Caleb made it all the way by clinging to promises that God had made, and you must as well. But you may be here saying, I'm not sure what promises you're talking about, Paul. Well, I want to help you with that. Where do you find these promises, Paul? I want to help you with that. And today, I hope, did you get those printed out, Randy? Awesome. I have a handout for you that lists out promises from the Bible that you can cling to. And they're even categorized by kind of topic or section that what I'm dealing with, for instance, I'm struggling with sin or I'm struggling with fear. What are promises I can cling to? If you are serious about this passage and what it's saying, and you want to, to make it like Caleb, then come see me afterwards, and I will make sure you can get those. In fact, actually, I'm going to put them up here on the front pew, front chair, <laughs> and come get them, okay? And if we need more, come find me. We can get more made. Finally, the life of faith is fully rewarding. You may be like, wait, it's lowly, it's scary, <laughs> it's uncertain. That does not sound like fun to me. 
Well, there are other churches in town that will tell you that it's fun all the time, but that's baloney. There are false teachers that want to get your money. But I'll tell you what, it is a fully rewarding uh, life. While there's uncertainty, because we don't know how it's going to play out, Caleb experiences, we see the blessing and inheritance of God at 85 years old. God, Caleb kept his eyes on God and was fully rewarded. And that blessing and that land was just the start. It was just the start because this life, my friends, as we read in James this morning, is just a vapor. And when that little vapor goes away, you step into eternal happiness with Christ, fully rewarded eternally, or if you're not in Christ, eternal judgment, and it won't be rewarding. The way it can be fully rewarded is if your faith is in Christ only and what he has done for you. So for us, how do we demonstrate faith like Caleb's? How do we do that? I told you what the life of faith is like. Let me just give you three points of how we can demonstrate faith like Caleb's. First, we do it with enduring obedience. It says in Hebrews, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. As I said, one man said that endurance, perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. Don't lose sight of the fact that in this life, Caleb received blessing because He remained holy following God. It actually says that in verse 14, the word because he wholly followed the Lord. Now, clearly, it's true that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But faith that pleases God is faith that obeys. That's what it looks like in your life is obedience. Wherever God is calling you to obey and you know that you're not, Today is the opportunity to repent and say, God, thank you for showing me this. I'm sorry for this. Help me move forward in the right direction with obedience. But it's not just an obedience that I can do this, right? How does this look in our life? It's obedience fueled by promises. The only way you're going to obey is if you remember the power source, that that is God's word to you. We have to cling to these promises. We have to pray them. And what I mean by pray them, if you come on Thursday night, you'll find out what I mean this week. To family night, we're going to take some time to say, what does it mean to actually pray Scripture? We'll model that for you this Thursday night. But you have to pray the promises. And we hold God to them. And and that's not a demand in the sense of bossing God around. And for some promises, we don't even know how they'll be fulfilled. But we... Don't demand the timing, but we beg for it. For instance, God promises that he wants to save people. I can hold him to that. I don't know when he's going to do that in someone's life, but I can hold him and say, God, you want to save people. Will you save this person? 
There are some, though, that you know he says he will do right now. For instance, he says, I I will never leave you or forsake you. And you can say, God, you said you would do this. Don't leave me now. I believe you won't. If you're serious about following God this year in 2023, I can promise you it will be hard. If you're serious about it, I can promise you it's going to be hard. And you're going to have to stock up your arsenal with promises from God. You can stock up the other arsenal at Ray O'Haran's, which you should, but you more importantly need to stock up your arsenal with the promises of God. I encourage you to put them on three by five cards and carry them around and read them every day. And if you want help, talk to this man right here, Bob Cassidy, about memorizing these. It will provide so much fuel and blessing in your life, you can't imagine it. Thirdly, what does it look like? It looks like us looking unto the greater Caleb. All of the Old Testament, as I say every time, shows us Jesus somehow, right? How does Caleb show us Jesus? Well, Caleb wasn't perfect. Even though it says he wholly followed the Lord, that doesn't imply necessarily that he was a perfect person he wasn't, because the Bible elsewhere says that no one's perfect. But it is said that he wholeheartedly followed God, and the life of faith of a real Christian often feels like a divided heart. Mine does. I pray with the psalmist, unite my heart, O God, to fear your name, because it feels so pulling apart. There's a really good chance that I would have been with the ten and not the two. But the reason that I know that I'm with the two and not the ten spies is that I'm with because of the greater Caleb. The greater Caleb, our big brother, Jesus Christ. Caleb's life points forward to Christ as the greater Caleb. The father, think about this, the father made a promise to the son and the son wholly, perfectly followed the father for 33 years and never ever disobeyed. He always believed in the promise of his father. He lived that life of faith in your place. And in his humanity, it was lonely for him. In his humanity, it was scary for him. In his humanity, it was long for him. In his humanity, he did not depend on feelings, but firmly held to the word of God in trials and temptation. Right? We, saw, we see that in Scripture. And in his humanity, he continued to persevere even though his circumstance did not get better. His greatest battle came against the forces of darkness and he faced the weight of his father's wrath on sin. And he did all this for you and for me. And he did this because we failed to do it. He did it he loves you. And like the first Caleb, this greater Caleb was blessed and received an inheritance. He was buried, and then the father raised him from the dead, and ascended. he ascended to the right hand of the father to reign forever and ever. And in his inheritance is his people and every square inch of this universe. So today, resolve in your heart 
not to necessarily pull up your bootstraps that you're going to do this on your own, but you're going to endure with obedience by living by the promises of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I confess that my faith is weak and that often I struggle and doubt, but God, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that you would help us to be people who live by the promises of God, that we would trust that what you say you will always do. Help us to be like Abraham who was convinced you would keep your promises. God, our hope is in Jesus only. For if there is somebody here today that is Jesus plus, I pray that you would show them that that plus won't do it, that they need to put their hopes, their stock, everything in Jesus only. And if there's someone here today who doesn't even know for sure that you would help them to see that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and their only hope is in him. Thank you for meeting with us today. Bless our, our time here this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.